I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 15. We've been engaged in a study of the parable of the prodigal son. And this morning we will be finishing our consideration of this powerful and poignant study in the lives of a father and his two sons. Beginning in verse 11, I'll be reading through verse 32. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray together. (coughs) Our Father, we would lay our hearts at your feet and we would ask that you would give us ears to hear, that we would come to understand and we would appreciate this message as it applies to each one of us, that we would hear the voice of the shepherd calling to us. We would come to our senses. We would run on the feet of faith and repentance back to the God from whom we have turned and against whom we have rebelled. We pray that you would have mercy on each one of us in this place, either restoring to us the joy of our salvation or bringing us from death to life from the far country back home to be with you. So hear us, we pray. Speak to each heart. Fetch much glory heavenward to your gracious and merciful name, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We have considered the lost son in three messages. We looked at his determinative decision, which caused him to think about and finally to leave his home and the chain of events that that set in motion. And then in a second message, we considered his licentious lifestyle. And finally, we looked at his revolutionary repentance. And then last Lord's Day, we considered the waiting father. We looked how he had graciously dismissed the departing prodigal, how he hopefully anticipated his son to return as a penitent, and how he joyfully received his former penitent or prodigal son now repentant. Well, that leaves us with one actor in this story to consider, and that is the disgruntled brother, and we meet him in verse 25. This elder brother was in many ways the model son. He was what the younger brother was not. He was hardworking. He was responsible. He was trustworthy. He was morally upright while his prodigal brother left home with his inheritance, which he wasted in loose living, scandalizing the family name, only to return home pitiful and penniless. To all appearances, the elder son had been the promising one. He could be counted on through thick and thin, to work the family farm and to uphold the family name. But there's more to the story of these two sons. The disaffection of the younger brother was evident in his departure from his father's home, but disaffection also lurked in the heart of the firstborn. It was soon to boil over in a tirade of disrespect toward his father, and self-righteous jealousy and unkindness toward his brother, 
revealing that he possessed the spirit of a hireling and not that of a dutiful son. He served his father not out of love. No, he served him out of a grudging desire for a reward. And this mercenary disposition was joined to a callous, joyless disregard for his penitent brother. Upon arriving home after a typical hard day's work, he's greeted with the untypical sound of music and dancing, only to find that his father had thrown a party to celebrate the return of his prodigal brother. It was then that he revealed the true condition of his heart. Brethren, we learn a lesson here that all heartless religion, however polite, moral, and industrious it may be, promotes only arrogance, jealousy, and at times even cruelty. Even if such a religion pretends to come from God and even calls itself Christian, it cannot produce anything but drudgery and bitterness. This is because one who relates to God on the basis of personal merit cannot comprehend the divine mercy that liberates the soul from bondage to sin, that energizes the love of God and produces sympathy with those that have been graciously redeemed. It doesn't understand grace and mercy. Legalistic Christianity, if we want to call it that, is powerless to produce the peace that is a blessed possession of all who attribute their salvation to God's amazing grace and to His amazing grace alone. Even worse, it mocks the God who delights to save the most profligate sinner and to make him both happy and holy. Truly joyful are those Christians who conscientiously relate to God, not on the basis of their doing, but upon the basis of the doing and dying of the Savior, Jesus Christ, alone. Miserable indeed are all who seek God's approval by their merit and not by God's mercy in Christ Jesus. Consider the example this morning, then, of the disgruntled brother. Notice three things about him before considering at some length his message for you and me. Notice, first of all, he accuses his gracious father of unfair treatment. Now, our Lord always paints human nature with an honest brush. Sometimes his finer strokes hint at the development of latent personality traits in his subjects. The younger son's disaffection with his father's righteous rule and his desire to sow his wild oats is anticipated by requesting his share of the family inheritance. With broader brush strokes, our Savior fills out the portrait of his unhappy profligate life. Sins that were simmering beneath the surface at home later boiled over, almost destroying this young man's life in the far country. 
Had God not intervened by bringing him to his senses, he would never have returned to his father and to his God. The image we have of the penitent prodigal fills us with hope of his subsequent happy life and even even happier eternity. But the older brother's final welfare, of which we are not so hopeful, let's consider him. Let's consider his accusation against his father of unfair treatment. First of all, two things. His accusation reveals his hireling spirit. He served his father grudgingly. The older son relates to his father, you see, on the basis of personal merit. He relates to him as a servant and not a son, really. He obeyed his father not out of delight, but out of drudgery to earn his father's favor as if it were to put his father in his debt. In the elder brother's mind, his father owed him. You see, he was hardworking. He was a steady fellow. He'd faithfully carried on the family business. He's always complied with dad's commands, never openly rebelling. He regarded himself as a model son. He was everything that his brother was not. Here the elder brother shows the true condition of his heart. He argues that he, not his brother, deserves a party thrown in his honor. He charges his father with injustice and favoritism. Secondly, his accusation exposes his unmerciful heart. Those who have received mercy will show mercy if they truly have received it. The older brother, you see, was a stickler for strict justice. He believed his father owed his brother nothing but censure and condemnation. As a stranger to grace, he he just cannot comprehend his father's mercy to his penitent brother. In fact, he would have his father increase his brother's misery rather than to relieve it. Favor to his mind must always be earned. You see, to his mind, his, his brother deserved no mercy at all. So he accuses his gracious father of unfair treatment. Secondly, he refuses to accept his penitent brother. Notice three things. First of all, he stubbornly refuses to celebrate his return. The father, the friends, the field workers all rejoiced with the penitent prodigal. But the elder brother cannot bring himself to celebrate with a happy company. And so he stays outside like a pouting, spoiled child, even after his father leaves the party, goes out to him, and entreats him to come inside. Secondly, he openly disowns him as his brother. But this son of yours came, etc., You see, the older 
older brother rejected his younger brother. He doesn't have any right to be called your son. To my mind, by his profligate life, he's committed the unpardonable sin. You're showing unprincipled mercy in receiving him back into the home. And though he returned home in brokenness, confessing his sin, you see, he's still a prodigal in his brother's mind. He'll never forgive him. In fact, those that don't forgive prove themselves never to have been forgiven in the first place. Didn't we just read that? In the sixth chapter of Matthew? So he deems himself his father's only worthy son. In fact, his father's only son. He sneers to his father. This wretched prodigal may be your son, but he's no brother of mine. He may be your son, but he ain't my brother. Thirdly, he maliciously accuses him of gross sin. Who has devoured your wealth, your wealth, with harlots. You see, his accusation of wasting his inheritance with sensual living was likely true, all of it but he trots it out here before his father. He doesn't have the love that covers a multitude of sins. He drags out his sin and he throws it down before his father. You see, judged on the grounds of personal merit and of strict justice, his prodigal brother was utterly undeserving of his father's kindness, but grace doesn't work that way. As a stranger to mercy himself, his brother simply could not understand his father's heart, that his grace was greater than his brother's sin, that he took no pleasure but in pardoning his penitent brother. You see, this brother glowered over his father's mercy toward his repentant brother, Because, you see, he never felt himself a sinner, and therefore he had no need for mercy himself. I suggest to you that the gospel application is as plain as it is powerful. When a penitent sinner comes seeking mercy from God, God delights to receive him. The father runs out to him, embraces him, kisses him, has sandals put on his feet and a ring on his finger, a robe on his back, and he kills the fatted calf. You see, when we come to Jesus like that, like this penitent former prodigal, our heavenly father looks to Jesus' wounds and pardons us for his sake. And since the elder brother had never repented of his own sin, he just could not fathom his father's mercy for his repentant brother. He could not rejoice with the forgiven brother because 
He was a stranger to God's pardoning grace. You see, he'd never tasted the Lord's sweet mercy for himself. As a proud man, he hated his penitent brother. You see, he had in him, really, the heart of Cain, who slew his brother, for his deeds were righteous in his word. So he accuses his gracious father of unfair treatment. He refuses to accept his penitent brother. Thirdly, he disregards the gracious words of his father. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Notice the perfect gentleness with which this father answered his petulant son's complaints. First of all, he disregards his father's calm response to his tirade. The elder son failed to understand that his father's rejoicing over his brother in no way detracted from his love and care for him. You can't love him and still love me. That's what he's saying here. You can't be kind to him and yet be kind to me. He's out of the picture. How can you be kind to him? Shower all of your kindness upon me. I'm the deserving one. By accepting his brother, this father is not rejecting him. He, he'd lost nothing by his father's mercy to his brother, but in stay, instead he gained his brother from the dead. But his father's words fell on his deaf ears. Something else. Though this disgruntled son never refers to his father as his father, yet this father sweetly refers to him as his own child. He still possessed the double portion of the inheritance that belongs to the firstborn. And though he had never been given a party with his friends, he sat next to his esteemed father every day at his table. All his father's possessions were his. Such was Jesus' gracious dealing with the hardened scribes and Pharisees. He was ever kind to them. They witnessed his miracles, listened to his teaching, heard his calls to repentance. But because they were blind to their sin, they were strangers to the joy of repentance. Little did the older brother know or care that his father's kindness should have led him to repentance. He had treated his father shamelessly, he had spoken to him insolently, and now right before him he throws a temper tantrum. Yet he saw none of this in himself as sin. Ryle is surely right. He had no right to complain of his father, but the father had right to complain of him. So he disregards his father's calm response to his tirade. 
Secondly, he disregards his father's gentle exhortation to rejoice. This father gently entreats the older son to celebrate his brother's repentance. You should be happy. He's home. That thrilled his father's heart, but not his heart. It just made him grit his teeth. And so he gently entreats him in three ways. First of all, he states that it was their duty before God to rejoice. This little particle had here implies moral obligation. But we had to be merry and rejoice. It's only right that we do so. Not to have rejoiced would have shown contempt for God who delights in a sinner's repentance. To be godly is to be godlike. And one way we are like God is to re- rejoice over the repentance of others. Secondly, their rejoicing was right because it celebrated life from death and a return from the ways of sin. He'd gone into the far country and wasted all of his money with loose living, kicked up his, his heels and basically destroyed his own soul. Notice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I dare say if his brother had been rescued from the jaws of a lion, wouldn't they rejoice over his physical deliverance? How much more should they rejoice since he had been delivered spiritually from his sins and rescued from the fires of hell? And finally, this brother should have rejoiced because the restored penitent was nothing less than his own flesh and blood. It was his brother. So his father reminded him, for this brother of yours. He didn't say, for my son has returned. He appeals to him. This brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Brethren, we see here that pride will destroy family affection. It makes enemies in the home. But the gospel restores and sanctifies natural affection. Now, this concludes the parable. It ends happily for the penitent. It rejoices the hearts of those who rejoice with him. But what about the older brother? What became of him? As we ponder this question, we know that some represented by the older brother, proud religious Leaders in Israel did later repent and were received as members of Christ's church. But the sad fact is that most did not. And so today, many self-righteous religious people carelessly tread the wide road that leads to destruction, content that they are heirs of heaven while they're headed to hell. Now, as we depart this scene, and as the sound of the festivities fade in the distance, each one of us must ask himself, 
with Judgment Day honesty this question, what about me? These things were written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Am I a penitent sinner like the younger brother or am I a proud pretend saint like the older pouting brother? It is sinners that Jesus calls to repentance. Let's consider some lessons from the disgruntled brother. Jesus' parable teaches that we are all sinners by nature. There's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born dead in sin until God makes us alive in Christ in the new birth, for it's by grace that we're saved. Sinners include respectable religious persons as well as those hugging the bottom of the social ladder. Whether respectable or reprehensible in the eyes of men, all persons, including ourselves, in the eyes of God, are naturally sons of disobedience and children of wrath. You see, pride, no less than profligacy, will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. Low life or high born, each one of us must repent if we would be saved. We must turn from our sin to the Savior. We must turn from the far country or abandon our self-esteem and come to Christ if we would not die in our sin, no matter how respectable we might be. So the chief lesson is here is we must be honest with ourselves. We must see ourselves reflected in the characteristic sins of these brothers. They represent each one of us. And until we see ourselves in them, we cannot be saved. But specifically, I have five points of application. First of all, understand that outward conformity to God's commandments is no sure indication that you are a true Christian. The elder son gave grudging compliance to all his father's commands. But he never obeyed from the heart. You see, God says to each one of us, son, daughter, give me your heart. You see, the heart of acceptable obedience is obedience from the heart. And the heart of heart obedience is gratitude for God's saving grace. Bible teaches that we love God before because he first loved us, right? And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the motivation, you see. True obedience is motivated by love to God. That's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God, that is our love for God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. No, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Obedience to God not motivated by love to him is not true obedience. Simple as that. You see, God doesn't want outward conformity to his commands, but he wants a heart that delights in doing his revealed will. 
Professing Christians who find God's commandments burdensome have yet to taste and see that God is good. Like the elder brother, oh, they may fake the spirit of a son for a while before their hireling spirit becomes evident. You can only fake it for so long. No profession of faith in Christ is genuine that is not accompanied accompanied by a disposition of delight to do God's revealed will in his word. So let me ask you, how is it with you? How is it with me? Do we delight in doing the will of God? Do we delight in the law of God after the inner man? Do you find pleasure in running in the way of God's commandments? Does he give liberty to your soul? You say, I want to run faster and farther, Lord. Give me grace so to do. And when remaining sin acts as lead at your heels and it slows your stride, do you cry out to God? Psalm 119, verse 35, as David did, make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. I don't always delight as I should, but it is the delight of my heart. Fill the wind or fill the sails of my soul with the winds of grace that I might run in the way of your commandments. Secondly, let us show the same kindness to others that God has showed to us. To whom much is given, much is required. We who know the Lord have been entrusted with a glorious message of a gracious God. God has been so good to us, and he has been good to us in part that we may show his goodness to other people. To the degree that we rejoice in our own salvation, we will show God's kindness to others. Parents, speak to you for a moment. In training your children, speak often of the kindness of God. Hopefully you've tasted and seen that God is kind yourself. And so you want your others, your your children to salivate for this kind of expression of God's kindness to them. In your instruction, point to his kindness in all of his dealings. In your discipline, lead them to the cross. Show them a crucified Christ for for the sins of all who trust in him. In your conversation about God, speak much about his mercy mercy to unworthy sinners like yourself. Why? That they might long for God's mercy for themselves as sinners. Employers and bosses seek by God's grace to reflect his kindness in your dealing with your employees your fellow uh, bosses, with your fellow workers, with your employees. Your gracious disposition and words may go a long way to correct others' misrepresentations and misperceptions about God's disposition toward them. This God saved me. He can save you. Speak to pastors. Speak to myself and my fellow elder. We must think 
often about how we represent Christ to our flock. We are Christ under shepherds. And our demeanor will impact our members' view of Jesus as the chief shepherd. Do we, even at times that we must exercise a measure of strictness and sternness, do we reflect the meekness and gentleness of Christ? Thirdly, beware of envying those whom God blesses with special tokens of his favor. The elder son complained that father showed kindness toward his unworthy brother. He saw his father's kindness toward him as unkindness toward himself, thinking he deserved better from his father because of his loyalty and hard work. Maybe you're a believer who's walked along with the Lord. You've known a measure of Christian joy over the years. You're persevering by faith. But when you see a new Christian carried away with transports of holy joy, are you tempted to think hard thoughts toward God? Why should God grant him such happiness while I have been serving him for all of these years and I don't share his bliss? How come, God? Well, this is the spirit of the elder brother in our own heart. Maybe you're a stickler for biblical worship and you see God adding members to a church that has never heard of or might even oppose the regular principle of worship or that cares nothing about honoring the Christian Sabbath. Your response to God may be, Lord, how can you bless a church that seems Little to care for ordering its worship according to the pattern of the Holy Scriptures. How can you bless them? Well, this is a manifestation of the spirit of the elder brother. Or you may be a prominent parent in the church. You're known for your godliness and faithfulness over all of these years. And you may be tempted to ask, why is it that the children of such and such Parents who are less prominent and really don't share my zeal and devotion are all following the Lord while my children are permitted to go into the far country and to become to me a source of constant grief. That's something of the spirit of the elder brother. God, why didn't you give me what you've given them? Or the worker in any outreach or benevolent ministry who thinks that too much attention is given to other persons he works with and so he becomes irritable and is tempted to quit his gospel services. That is something of the spirit of the elder brother. Or the hypersensitive person who easily takes offense and excludes himself from fellowship with others because he doesn't feel that he's properly esteemed and appreciated. That was the elder brother. In the last example of this unhappy spirit, I quote a well-known and successful servant of Christ from a former generation. The spirit of the elder brother is seen 
He says, when a minister of age and excellence who is mourning over the apparent fruitlessness of his labors is tempted to ask, how is it that a younger brother in the very outset of his career is made the instrument in bringing multitudes to Christ and permits himself to think, if not to say, that it is mean of God to pass by an old and faithful servant such as he has been and to use and bless the inexperienced lad. He probably knew of what he spoke. The spirit of the elder brother, sadly, is alive and well, inside as well as outside the sanctuary, and in the pulpit as well as in the pew. And if we are honest, we must admit that he lives, the spirit of the elder brother lives in you and he lives in me. Since Christ condemns this spirit, we must constantly mortify it when it rises within our own hearts. Fourthly, let no person think ill of God when mistreated by unkind professing Christians. Maybe that's you here this morning. You see, we who profess Christ can be unkind, quite frankly, toward non-Christians, especially toward those we deem guilty of scandalous sins. In our pride, we may be positively unlike Christ in our interaction by failing to extend to them the unmerited kindness that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. It's unholy pride. Let me say to you, if you've suffered unkind treatment by professing Christians, don't judge a gracious Christ by his ungracious followers. Let all professing Christians be like him who loves the unlovely. Indeed, he loved you and he loved me. What did Jesus say? For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? These are unconverted people, you see. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brethren, I suggest that the best of us whoever that might be, still has a long ways to go. Finally, let us all know for certain that God sincerely desires the salvation of every person. God declares that all men everywhere should repent. This is his earnest desire. He says it through the mouth of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33:11 Say to them say say to this exiled people for their sin who are being punished by my hand Say to them as I live declares the Lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways why then will you die O house of Israel That's God's heart speaking through the mouth of the prophet. 
Do not therefore let the doctrine of election keep you from Christ. No. Election assures us that all whom God has chosen and for whom Christ has died, they will come to him and they will be saved. Election keeps no penitent person from Jesus. Instead, it assures us that Christ will receive all that come to him. Didn't Jesus say that? All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Christ saves all who come to him. No matter their background, no matter their sin of choice, no matter how deep they've gone into wickedness, perhaps they've dived into the very bottom of the pit. Christ rescues every repentant sinner and makes him an adopted child of God. He washes him in his blood, pardoning him from his sin, giving him a new heart where things of the old life pass away and they're replaced by the things of grace. Indeed, they're introduced into a life of peace and hope and joy. Let me ask you this morning in closing, are are you numbered with this happy company? If you aren't, and you can't say for sure that you are, run to Jesus Christ today, and he will receive you unto himself. For he has given you a heart to turn from your sin and come to him, and he will not cast you out. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we pray that you would take these things that we have read and heard and not say they're for someone else and not for me. Rather to say, if they're not for anybody else, they are certainly for me. That we would see ourselves standing naked before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And we would say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord, you've shown your mercy to the chief of sinners. Certainly, I am a sinner, and I'm closer to the chief than the least. Have mercy upon me. Or if you're a young person and say, I really don't know what this boy did, but it certainly must be bad. But you know in your own heart you're not right with God. We pray that you would run to to the Lord Jesus and be saved. That whether old sinner or young sinner, that this might be the day of salvation for all. Help us, we pray, as your people, not to imitate the spirit of the elder brother, but help us to have the, the joy of the penitent and the receptive heart of the Father. Oh, Lord, make us more into the image of him who loved us and gave himself for us, even us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.